All right. Thanks, Gary. And thanks as well to for the Morgan and Pat and just uh, all the good things of testimony of God's work there in Julie's life. And yes, it is uh, time of the, for the little ones to, if they want to go to children's church for that, so they can head out as we get ready to dive into God's word now. So, all right. Well, let's just bow in prayer here before we, we get into to God's word. Father, uh, your word is, is amazing. It's powerful. It's as you said, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so, Lord, because it has that power and your spirit is the one who, who wields it in our lives, I, I do ask that you would help me to be careful, that you would guard my words, that you would uh, help me as I continue to learn through this passage and that as, as each one uh, here today is, is listening, that it, it wouldn't be me that, that is uh, really doing the work, but you, in fact, would be pleased to work through me. And that uh, your spirit would work in each heart to, to, to bring out the things that need to be heard, to change uh, perspective and, and desires and, and, and draw us close to you as, as you want us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, we continue this morning in John chapter 13. Uh, last week we, of course, had uh, a section that uh, in some ways is not uh, one of those that just makes you go away and say, oh, I'm so encouraged. <laughs> Jesus was talking about the man who was going to betray him. And yet even in that we found that there was encouragement because Jesus demonstrated that he himself is, as he put it, I am. He demonstrated that he understood what was going on and that, in fact, he was going to become the one who would provide for our sins. And even though uh, Judas would, would, would repel all of Jesus' opportunities for him to turn and to repent and, and to, st to stop going down the road he was going and following Satan, Jesus was still headed to the cross to pay for our sins. And we ended last time with Judas going out, and it was night. So, in a sense, a very sad note to end on. But now the, the whole makeup of the group has changed. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, being part of a, a group of people gathered together, maybe for a Bible study or just a group of people uh, getting together just to visit. And one person is added or one person is taken out of the group and the whole uh, feel of the group changes, right? Uh, suddenly there's, there, in this case, somebody left. And now there's a whole new freedom to speak and to, to talk about things that, that weren't being talked about yet. Not that there was anything to hide, but now there are things that are more appropriate for Jesus to say to the 11 who are not going to betray him. So follow along with, with me now, if you would, as I read John chapter 13, verses 31 uh, through ch chapter 14, verse 3. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So with Judas out of the room, Jesus now um, begins to speak about things differently. And, and by that I mean that now as he begins to speak about, to begin with, his glory and the glory of the Father, I think it's important that Judas had left simply because Judas wouldn't have understood the idea of glory outside of, of his little box that he'd put it in. I believe Judas was seeking glory. He was associating with this man who, who drew great crowds, uh, this man who did performed amazing miracles. But it appears he was interested in the glory of this world, not the glory of the Father, not the glory that is ultimately worthwhile. And so in verse, verse 31 of chapter 13, it says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, he, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. So what are those two verses about? <laughs> when God repeats Himself, pay attention, right? It's about the glory of the Son and the Father and how it's all wrapped up together. It's all really just one glory. Jesus continues to emphasize how that glory is bound up, the Father and the Son together. We, we've just been seeing this in chapter 12, uh, verse 23. Remember Jesus said, answered and said, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then he went on to talk about him giving his life, right? Drop down to verses 27 and 28, where he said in chapter 12, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it 
again. God is very concerned with his glory, and appropriately so. When we who are sinners and are remarkably inglorious get wrapped up in our own glory, it's a problem. But when the infinite, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God says, I will be glorified, all of his creation can rejoice. Because that is deserved, and that is how it should be, and that's what is best for all of creation. When the maker of that creation receives the recognition and the glory. And in Isaiah, more than once, God is quoted as saying, my glory I will not give to another. And this, again, reemphasizes Jesus' deity, because here Jesus is basically saying, Father, if you're glorified, then I will be glorified. If you glorify me, it glorifies you. It's all tied up together. And that really, as those who are followers of Jesus, believers in God, we ought to be concerned first and foremost in everything that we do with Him getting glory in it. That whatever happens, people will say, what an amazing God you have. Who is this God that you worship? He overwhelms me with all that He is and He does. And so Jesus, all that Jesus does as a human being, having come to earth as, as the God-man, brings glory to the Father. And the Father loves to emphasize the glory of the Son as well. You might stop and think, Jesus, when he talks about glory, it's all about going to the cross. You say, well, where's the glory in that? How is it? Is it being treated as a criminal, being beaten, being abused, being spit on, being nailed to a cross, where you suffer in torture for hours? How is that glory? Because that's what Jesus keeps attaching this idea of glory to, is that he would come and he would die for sinners. One of the things that you think about is glory. The idea of glory is that it's, it's really just bringing out and helping us to see more clearly, more fully, and in, and in greater detail the attributes of God. What is he like? And let's broadcast them. Let's, let's shout them through the megaphone. Let's put them up on the screen even bigger so that we begin to understand them because we don't understand them well. So in Jesus going to the cross, here are some of the attributes that are magnified. First of all is love. There's no greater example of love. It's really key to what follows as well. Jesus is going to apply the fact that, that his glory is being demonstrated through love in just a few verses. But the love of the true God sets him apart from every other so-called God because his love is real. What he does in love is chosen based not on circumstances or emotion, but on his character and his essence. And the love of God sacrifices to the ultimate amount in order to bring the greatest good to those who are loved. 
Now stop to think about what it means for the infinite God to sacrifice to the ultimate amount so that those who are benefited get an ultimate good. It should overwhelm us, really. How can an infinite God sacrifice that, that much? What, what does that look like? What does that mean? But Jesus is saying, well, look, here it, it's in me. A plan that's been laid out over centuries, millennia actually, well, even before the foundation of the earth, right? Is being played out in him in such a way that he gave up all the glory that was his, seated by the Father. He suffered, became a man, lived among sinners who were rebelling against him, took their abuse, took their attempts to kill him, took their blaspheming against him, took their attack and arrest of him and all that was about to happen on this very night and the next day. He sacrificed all of that, not to mention that he was willing to, to take sin on himself and to bear our sin and then bear the punishment for our sin. And, and it just expands, right? That's glory. That's glory that he would do that. Love demonstrated so boundlessly. Faithfulness is also glorified here. His faithfulness is, is demonstrated. And actually also the concept of trust, which is so closely related. But God is both faith, totally, completely faithful and trustworthy. His word is completely reliable from when he told Eve in the garden that the, the, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head to the thing to, to telling Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That through David, whose descendant was promised to come and be the chosen one, the Messiah, to, to Daniel, have promised the coming of, and actually use that word, Messiah. All those promises and so many more could be totally trusted. They would come about at just the right time. His promises are certain. And Jesus demonstrates this to its fullest extent as he prepares to go to the cross, as we just saw in those verses in chapter 12. So what shall I say? Shall I ask if I be taken away from this? When he goes to the garden, he says, Lord, if there's any other way, but not your will, my will, but your will be done. And there he demonstrates the other side of faithfulness with being trusting having become a man, having put himself in our place, he trusts the one who is faithful. And so God is glorified both in faithfulness and in trusting. Isn't that an amazing thing? It shows us what it looks like. Justice is also a way that, that this glory is manifested because the price for sin must be paid. God doesn't just somehow wave his magic hand and say, oh, sins are forgiven. I didn't really mean it that that was wrong. Or I didn't really mean that that would bring death. No, he carries out the natural consequence of sin. He carries out 
the punishment that he declares is deserved for sin to its fullest extent by having it poured out on his son. That's glorious. When seen accurately, there can be no sin debt left to threaten sinners who have believed. If there had just been, oh, I forgive you, well, what if he decides to just randomly say, oh, I don't forgive you? Well, it's not in his character, is it? But on the other hand, there's also the record there. There's Jesus himself who stands before the Father and is the evidence that all those sins have been paid for, for all who will believe. They're gone. Taking care of justice is satisfied. There's no justice to be satisfied in me. No punishment that can be brought that will make God any more just. He has completely satisfied justice at the cross. That's where Jesus is headed, right? Glory, glory. That should give us, as well, full peace in our relationship with God while it inspires us with an overwhelming awe. But also displays God's wisdom. I mean, there's a paradox in the whole process of saving people, right? Because you have justice that must be served. And yet you have grace to give freely to those who will come. And God, in the person of Jesus Christ, made it all possible that he could bear the punishment for sinners. And that then salvation could be given freely to those who believe and are united with him. It all comes together, and the wisdom of it, he he laid out, as I was alluding to earlier, all those prophecies throughout the Old Testament, over and over, again and again, in every single book, there are, are pictures and descriptions and examples of how it will happen that our sins will be paid for, and we can then have an intimate relationship with God. And Jesus, here at the point of going to the cross, oh, there's glory because it all comes together in Him in this moment in time. And if we really look at it and consider it carefully and realize how it impacts me, but also how it impacts the whole universe, there's glory. So when Jesus says, me going to the cross, now there's glory for me, for my Father. Together. It all happens right here. His disciples are totally unaware of what really is going on in that moment. But they'll look back and they will see. And they will say, oh, all that was happening there, right under our nose, and we didn't really get it. Then Jesus turns to a related topic in verse, in verse uh, 30, 33. And he says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I have said to the Jews now, I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he turns his attention to an immediate need. Just within a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested, and his disciples are going to be bowled over. They're going to scatter. They're going to be frightened. They're not going to know what's going on. 
and through, and through the process of the cross and, and his burial and everything else. He's gone. He's not with them. And so ahead of time, he tells them in advance what is going to happen, right? Which he said back in chapter 12, so that you may know that I am he, right? He's going to tell them things in advance. Then when they know them, they're going to remember, oh, yes, Jesus said, I am I'm Yahweh, I am God. And then he addresses them, these fishermen, these working men, working class men. What does he call them? My little children. What's to get the idea of the immensity of who he is and what's about to happen here and how he cares for them? He says, my little children. I don't think I've started off any men's breakfasts with those words. But John will pick it up and use it in his letters. And he will call those he addresses, my little children. But Jesus doesn't say when. He doesn't say where he is going. But he tells them, he has been telling them about his, his death coming in Jerusalem. But here he, he, he drops this on them again. I am with you a little longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. It's a clear statement. And you can't come. Well, what's this about, as I told the Jews? Well, you might remember back in chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, as he is debating with the Jewish leaders. <clears throat> it says, therefore, and again, he's in this this. This battle, verbal battle, and, and they try to arrest him, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So now the same thing he said to those who have made themselves his enemies, he says to his disciples and followers. Also in chapter 8, verse 21, we have a similar situation <clears throat> And they try to arrest him, and he said again to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Which must have hit the, the disciples like a, a ton of bricks, right? You're going to go, and we can't come, just like you said to those who wanted to kill you? You cannot follow me? Why can't we be with you? Well, John follows up with that a few verses down, so we'll keep on moving. Verse 34, as Jesus continues now teaching, us, if I'm not with you, here is how you are to live. Take this principle, and though you will not be with me physically, here is how you are to live according to who I am and what our relationship has been. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also Love one another. So he laid the groundwork, prepared them to think, how, how are we going to get on without Jesus? Jesus says, here's how it is, is you will love one another. This is instruction they'll need for the future when they are the ones taking the good news about Jesus to the world. What's, what's the bottom line? What's the main thing to remember? Love one another. Well, how, how is that a new commandment? I mean, they'd already had back in Leviticus 19, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Jesus in Matthew 22, 39, if you just take a quick look back there, 
Uh, Jesus reiterated that. 2239, you might look around the context there and you'll notice that he's been asked, what is the greatest commandment? And remember, of course, he says that the greatest one in verse 37 is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Then he says, this is the great and foremost commandment. Now, verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. He said, you can sum up the whole law in those two. All the commandments in the law have to do with loving the Lord or loving your neighbor. How? As yourself. So, is what Jesus is telling them here new? In a sense, no. Because he's always, there's always been a command there to love others, right? Paul even quotes it in Romans 13. You know, talking about obeying the government. That's the basis for why you obey the government. Why? Well, because you're loving others as yourself. But a little detail that can come out of the study of the Greek in this passage is when he says a new commandment, there's a couple of different words in Greek that can be used. One of them is new in time. The other means new in quality. And that's the word Jesus chooses to use here. There is something new about this commandment in that it's got a different quality to it. The emphasis in using this word is not on time, but what this loving is like. The old commandment was good. But there's a substantial difference. The old commandment was measured by what? Love for yourself. Jesus' commandment is based on his love for us. I want you to love others the way I have loved you. Guess what? Even though we're really good at loving ourselves, Jesus raised the standard infinitely there, didn't he? There's a whole different kind of love that he's calling for. It's a love that seeks what is ultimately best for the other, even if it costs you a great deal. Jesus says, here's, here's the closeness, here's the care I want you to have for each other. That you're willing to just give up what you want, even to the point of your own life. Because that's what he's about to do, right? That's how, That's the kind of love I want you to have for each other. So this love comes with a living, breathing, perfect example. What he's about to live through in the next 48 hours. Okay. How has and will he love them? It's a radical, self-denying love that gives to... Remember, oh, do you remember verse 1 of chapter 13? Remember the end of that verse? It says, having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end, or to the utmost, or to the most complete, to the limit. That's the kind of love he's saying, men, you're going to have to have this for each other. And since they're apostles, they'll be sent to, to teach those that to believe, to love each other as Jesus loved to this, this degree. So it's a difference in quality. 
but it's also a difference in ability. And we're going to have to borrow from some of his teaching just, just a few hours later or not too long later in chapter 15. Remember when he uses the, the illustration of the vine and the branches? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The picture being for you to have life, for you to produce good works or to produce anything good, you have to be in me, drawing your very life, your sustenance, your nurture from me. That's the difference here that, that is also substantial. Because to love like Jesus loved for us in ourselves is impossible, right? And love your neighbor as yourself, honestly. To do it consistently all the time is impossible for sinners. Now Jesus has raised the standard even higher, but he also says, and you will draw from me the power and the ability to do it. You won't have to do it on your own. You'll be able to cry out and say, Jesus, love through me. Give me your strength and power and ability to love because I can't love like that in myself. I need then to see my own weakness and inability and have him provide what is needed to give like that, to love like that make a difference in others' lives like that. He's, he's got to be doing it through me. And when we do, Jesus says we're going to have an amazing impact on those around us. <clears throat> Verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Oh, so it's not just how great it will be for you. It will be, right? I mean, if we as a, as a church body are loving each other with the same kind of intensity and sacrifice that Jesus loved us with, man, it's going to be great, and, and we can see it, can't we? It is happening, not perfectly, of course. God's working on us. He's changing us, right? But don't you love when we see it and when, it, when we notice it, when we realize what God is doing through each other? But he says, also, outside of this body, outside of those who believe, the people looking in, they'll know that you belong to me. They'll say, they're following Jesus, aren't they? They're the, they're the ones who are connected with the, the, the man who gave his life, the God-man, God the Son. They're going to wonder about you, even if they don't understand why you are the way you are. And, it's, and that's going to make a huge difference. Our words are important, and we should share the words of the gospel with everyone. But the life of the gospel should be evident within us, and that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to, and therefore calling us to. Is living in such a way that when people watch you, they see the gospel and what it, what it means. They see grace and forgiveness. They see sacrificial love for one another. Well, that brings us then to Peter, who in all this talk about love and everything, since Jesus lost him back when he said, I'm going away. He'll, he'll, he'll come back, he'll figure it out, right? The other things he said and understand. But Peter is, is just focused on that phrase. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? I don't, I don't want to hear about the love stuff right now. I want to know where you're going. 
Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. He's got this, this question burning in him. And Jesus gives a repetition of, of what he has said. He's not where he's going, he can't come. But then he also says, there's, here's a difference between you and those religious leaders I was talking to that, that wanted to kill me. You will come later. Now, there's actually a couple of meanings that we can find behind that. First of all, John 21, verses 18 and 19. Uh, if you jump ahead a little bit in the book, we find out that uh, Peter will follow Jesus where he is going in the sense that it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So there's a sense in which the meaning of that is Peter will follow Jesus to being killed for believing in Jesus. And, and uh, tradition tells us he was, he was crucified and crucified upside down because he said he didn't deserve to die the same way that his Savior had died. But there's, so there's one way, he's, in a sense, uh, yeah, you're going to follow the same path and, and it will end up you being with me. But of course, the ultimate meaning being you will follow me into that life, that new life that's after death, that new life with the Father. So where I am going, yeah, Peter, you'll, get, you'll be there eventually. But for now, you need to be prepared for the life here in this, on this earth. And the thing that, that Peter really wants, though, is to be with Jesus. And that is what he's really concerned about. He also wants to make sure that Jesus knows that he thinks he will be fully faithful, even to the point of death. And here Jesus lets him know that there will come, there will be a day when they will be together again. And that should have been some comfort to Peter. But Peter's not done. <laughs> Verse 37, he says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. What a Peter statement, huh? He's just such a passionate man. And he just lays it out there. Here's what's on my heart. I'll, I'll go to, to death for you. And Matthew 26, 35, by the way, tells us that all the other disciples said the same thing. John singles out Peter because Jesus did as kind of a leader amongst them. Peter's not satisfied with later. It's like, Jesus, it doesn't matter where you're going. I, I just want to be with you. He wants to keep on in his presence. He doesn't want to be separated. So he makes this bold declaration, I will lay down my life for you even, Jesus. And Jesus says what we probably need to say sometimes to people who make bold declarations. Will you? Will you? Maybe it needs to be said to us sometimes. Oh, yeah, I'll do But will you? He says, lay down your life for me. Stop and think, Peter. Stop and consider who you are, 
Are you really willing? And then he says, oh, he throws in truly, truly. In other words, Peter, pay attention. I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus, again, tells Peter, tells the disciples in advance what is going to happen. Why? Oh, so they know that he is I am, right? Here's an opportunity to know who he is. He even knows the future down to the point of being sovereign over when roosters crow, right? God has laid this out. And it's also a training session of believing in Jesus and therefore trusting him. Because he often has things for us that we don't like, but that are what we truly need. Peter didn't want to be physically separated from Jesus at all. He wanted to always be with him. And Jesus is saying, this is for the best, Peter. For now. You'll come later. But for now, it's best for you not to. But also, this issue of you even dying for me, here's, here's a sign for you to help you remember that in yourself you can't do it. When you hear that rooster crow, stop and think what you've said here. Of course, we'll get to that a little later, right? But Jesus is very specific about it all and gives him that gracious sign to help him remember. Now, we're going to go really quickly through some verses that deserve more time. And maybe we'll come back to these again next week. But, but Jesus doesn't just leave them there with, I'm going to go away. But he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So he starts off with, with a command, right? Well, really three commands. He says, I know that right now your hearts are troubled because of what I said to you. And he commands them, don't let your heart, and really the, the way it's phrased in the original, don't let your heart keep on being troubled like it is right now. Okay? They're already, their hearts are troubled. Jesus gives them a command to, to stop that and not let that keep on going. What a command, though, right? We've been told uh, that Jesus has been troubled on more than one occasion in these last few chapters, right? He knows what it's like, and he knows where to go when it happens, right? Where did Jesus go? He went to his father, right? He immediately was talking to his father, orienting his human mind toward what his father wanted. Every time that he went to his father, and every time he found peace, and the ability to move forward by submitting to his father's will and seeking his father's glory. So he knows that it's available for them to do the same. Not just knowing in his, in his mind as the omniscient God, but, but experientially as a human being who moving toward the cross was troubled in his soul. He will do it again in the garden, right? So there's the first command. Well, how do we do that? How do we not be troubled? Believe in God. Now that phrase, there's two legitimate ways to translate that. And some of your Bibles say, you believe in God. Could be a statement. I think it's probably a command because he's giving them the, well, what's the means of not being troubled? You, and it's 
Present tense, keep on believing in God. Have as a lifestyle, in an ongoing way, belief in God. So Jesus is commanding the disciples to have that as your pattern. Go on and on, trusting God. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, believe also in me. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You can't just believe in God generically or even in just the Father. He's already told us on multiple occasions in these chapters. It's all tied up together. Believing in him, his glory, and the Father's glory, it all goes together. He wants them to believe what he is saying to them and trust that it is good. That's how they can stop being troubled, is saying, yeah, okay, Jesus, I don't like the fact that you say you're going away. But I do know that you know what is best, and your plan is complete and full and what is best for me. Then Jesus goes on in verses 2 and 3 and say, it's going to be good later. If, you, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know... Well, you better stop there. Because that gets into a whole other conversation. But he's going. And, and he's using here the language of a groom to the bride before the wedding day comes. Because in those days... A man lived with his family in the family complex, you could say. When he says house, that's the idea. And as the family grows up and as the young men get married, they build on to the family complex and have a place. And when that's all put together and ready to go, he goes and he gets his bride. And they come and they have the wedding and they celebrate. And she is in, then lives in the father's house together with the groom. Jesus uses that language with his disciples now, who is, you know, he's, he's already, John doesn't talk about it, but he's already gone through what we do at communion, talking about, here's my, the covenant of my blood. And now he's saying, and I'll come. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come, I'll take you to this place in my father's complex place where you can, you and I, will live together forever. And so look ahead to the future. Though we won't be physically together, but just a few more hours, I will come and take you to the place that I've prepared where things will be perfectly prepared and ready and all that you could want. Mostly, remember what Peter wanted. I want to be with you. That's the emphasis. And we still live in those circumstances, don't we? We still live in those same circumstances that Jesus put his disciples in, where he has gone and, and we are not physically with him, but he says, until I come for you, love one another as I have loved you. Until I come to take you to the place I've prepared for you. So it gives us that, kind of, here's a, just a basic, how do you live the Christian life? Here's, here's some really basic way, things to remember. While you're waiting for Jesus to come and take you to be with Him, love others the way He loved you. By His strength, by His power. 
So don't let your hearts go on being troubled. Were they troubled? Are they troubled? Stop it. Because <laughs> Jesus said, and he gave us the ability and gave us the way, right? Trust Jesus for your circumstances now. And then turn to the other people in your life. Maybe they're troubled. How can you give of yourself in a sacrificial way for what's ultimately best for them? See, he knows what he's doing. Believe in God. Trust him. Believe in Jesus. Trust him that he knows what's going on. Keep on loving. Let's pray. Father, this applies to so much in our lives, and we could go on for hours and hours now to talk about how it applies, but I pray that your spirit will help us each to apply it to our own individual circumstances and situations. Thank you that your spirit will be there to guide us uh, further time in your word to, together and by ourselves and in other groups will, will help us to know better how to love. But, but I, I just pray especially today, Lord, for uh, those who are here who are having a really hard time loving someone. And it's, it's not, love's not an easy thing and, and we are weak and helpless in that endeavor and we need Jesus, we need you, we need your spirit to do that through us. So Father, I pray that there would be some breakthroughs in our body. Uh, people finding out ways to express love, even to people that don't seem very lovable. So help us to see who we are before you and in Christ. And then please, please love through us to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.